Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Lab at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Paolo Molignini, and I'm a postdoc in theoretical physics here at the Cavendish. And hi, I'm Simone Zagre Barker, and I'm a PhD student in experimental physics here at the Cavendish. Our guest this month is Tina Potter, professor of high energy physics here at the Cavendish, an expert in the particle physics beyond the standard model. Tina developed a passion for physics at a young age and has always been drawn to the big fundamental questions about the nature of our reality. What is the universe made of? How do its constituents behave? And how can we detect them? At university, she started learning about collider experiments and particle physics immediately became her passion. She continued with the doctorate and that's when the world of CERN, the world famous particle accelerator facility located at the border between Switzerland and France, opened up to her. She lived through the groundbreaking discovery of the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider, a discovery that completed the standard model of particle physics and for its importance was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2013. Today, she's working on new theories beyond the standard model that could explain phenomena that still remain a mystery today. She is searching for science of new particles that may briefly form in the proton-proton collisions at the Large Hadron Collider and may be candidates for dark matter the invisible constituents that make up most of the matter in our universe, but which have escaped direct detection so far. Tina certainly likes a challenge, but how can one tackle these larger-than-life research projects? And how is it to work on decade-long experiments with huge data sets and hundreds and hundreds of collaborators across the world? We'll ask her this and more in this episode. Stay with us! Welcome, Tina. It's great to have you here. Good morning. Good morning. So Tina, when was your first encounter with with physics? Well, my first encounter with physics, I think when I was really doing my Mm A-levels, it's when I I think I started to really understand the physics that we were being taught and realized that I could actually see it in a very simplified view. I could see the patterns. I could see the equations of motions behind what we were being taught and I realized that I enjoyed it and I wanted more. And I think that's when I really started to pay attention to physics. So uh, you follow your passion for physics and start studying it at uh, Royal Holloway University of London. The realm of physics is of course very vast. So what do you like about particle physics in particular? You're right, it is very vast. (laughs) Um, And I remember we didn't, I didn't do any particle physics actually until my second or third, maybe my third year actually of my undergraduate, and I think it's the same here um, for the students at Cambridge. I hadn't seen any of it before. I didn't know that this was actually going to be what I was going to do for the rest of my career when I walked into that lecture theatre. but what really grabbed me was the the rich array of things that we were looking at, the patterns between them, the things that we understood to incredibly high precision, and the huge number of questions that were still left in this field. It wasn't a course that was being taught to me, oh, here's the book, here's all of the answers, and here's this very well understood field, um, and we think we've understood it, closed book. This was very much an open field. Um, and that really 
sort of grabbed my attention, actually. And the things that the lecturers would sometimes say, like a sterile neutrino or dark matter, but we won't go into that, grabbed my attention and caused me to pick up different books, I think, for the first time in my undergraduate degree and learn things beyond the course. And then I never really let go of these ideas. They never really left me. In my, uh, we do we did things like uh, literature reviews and undergraduate projects. Those were the things that I was drawn to as well. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to use that time to learn more about these topics. Um, so yes, I think it's really that it's a, still a very open field. There's things that I could contribute to it. Um, and there's, I mean, I think it's still going to be a very open field for decades to come. So big questions. Big uh, questions. Unexplored <laughs> Uh, questions. Um, what are the big questions that you would like to tackle during your lifetime? The big one that I think I've ended up landing on is dark matter. When we look at our cosmological um, measurements of the universe, like the, the cosmic microwave background radiation, we, and when we look out at the universe, we, we know that most of our universe is not matter that we know of, the, the fundamental particles that we know about and understand incredibly high precision, it's not made up of that, it's made up of something else. We see its gravitational effects, we don't know what it is though. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's a major piece of the puzzle that's missing, this major big question, what is our universe actually made of? We only know what, what 6% of the universe is made of, 26% of it is dark matter, about 65% of it is dark energy, but I, I don't look at that. <laughs> That's a bigger question in itself. So I would like to know what dark matter is. If it's a particle, that would make sense, I think, with our understanding of the universe. Every time we can't explain something or there's a pattern that isn't explained by the particles we know about, we usually um, theorise a particle that could fit or new symmetries, patterns that would fit. And we go away and we look for that particle and there it is, usually in, in some nearby area where we've been looking. So if dark matter is a particle, we should be able to make it in the lab. So we should be able to make it in high energy collisions. I would really like to, to make it or maybe something that is related to it in our collisions and start to understand some of the nature. First off, is it a particle? <laughs> Is it something um, which we can make and we can understand the interactions with the particles we know about? That's what I would really like. I'd, I would, I'd say that I, I'd love by the end of my career to understand everything about dark matter, but I would just like to start to understand some of the first little, questions. A little bit of uh, little bit understanding, a little yes. piece to the puzzle. That yeah. would be fantastic. <laughs> And so after your undergraduate studies, you went traveling for a while, but then you were asked back to do a PhD. That's when you first came into contact with the world of CERN. How was the environment like there? It was crazy. Um, <laughs> going to CERN, um, it, it's a huge lab with people from all over the world there. And the culture there was, is very different to anywhere else that I've been as well. Mm -hmm. The collaboration, the openness, the, the very high level and low level discussions that are taking place all around you. Your, your fellow PhD students are there trying to understand what's going on as well. And also, you know, there's Nobel Prize winners 
walking around, also trying to understand everything that's going on. So it's a, it's a very much a melting pot um, and a very unique culture there that, you know, I haven't been able to, to visit because of the pandemic for a while, um, but it's something that I miss very much. Mm-hmm. It's something that we've been able to carry on, I think, to uh, quite a, a good level online as well, and I hope that will carry on as well. But, um, yeah, CERN is a very, very, very special place. And what's it like working with so many collaborators with hundreds of people on the same project? How does that work? Do you all have a different piece of the puzzle that you're looking at? or? Yes, you sort of... It, you end up forming teams with other people from other institutes who are interested in looking or measuring for a particular thing. And even within that team, there's lots of pieces mm-hmm. of the job to take on to get to that end goal, to make that measurement or make that search and bring out a, a publication after that. So everybody takes on a role of you know, trying to develop signal-rich selections or even understanding how our signal uh, would appear in our detectors understanding background estimations, suppressing uncertainties. Everybody has a, a part to play um, in in that team to bring that measurement together. It's like a big orchestra and everybody has to play along and like... <laughs> That's an excellent analogy. And, you know, <laughs> and also you have to... What I sort of learned along the way is that you, you do have to be very open to this and, and get past any shyness or fears about talking to people as well. You cannot, in this area of research sit alone in a room and that was never what I wanted to do anyway you do have to get out there be proactive and talk to people sit next to people mm-hmm. and chat through things and talk through things and not be shy when there's a problem as well so um, yes the, the collaboration is fantastic on that very small day-to-day level but also when you bring your work out to the collaboration and it, it becomes very highly scrutinized by the rest Mm -hmm. of the collaboration and polished and more ideas come out as well so that continual development that continual conversation uh, that you have in these collaborations is incredibly rewarding and so that personal growth side of things of having that confidence to speak to others and kind of put your ideas out there is that something that you personally also saw was um, something that you were becoming more comfortable with during your time there Yes. When I started my PhD, I was incredibly shy. I would find it difficult to talk to people, let alone give a talk to anybody or do. Um, I wouldn't have even thought about doing uh, lectures to to (laughs) hundreds of students. Um, And it is something that I really had to push myself to get over, get over those nerves and try to relax into situations like that a bit more. And I think, I mean, certainly during my PhD and during my postdocs, I have developed, or forced myself to (laughs) develop the confidence to do those kinds of things. And I really enjoy them. Do you have a quick strategy to uh, help with those situations or is something that is just acquired through like years of experience? (laughs) Exactly. No, I have a strategy. I tried a few things that worked. There's always that flutter. When you're, when you're in a meeting and there's a series of talks and you're maybe the third one, there's that flutter that comes up in between you and that anxiety that rises up. Um, and I try and lean into it, give myself a couple of minutes to, okay, I feel stressed and uh, uh, anxious about this. Uh, but in a few minutes, I'm not going to allow myself to feel that way and I'm just going to go up and get on with it. So I... I I give it a place for a few minutes and then I put it back where it belongs. That's usually my strategy. That's that's a very good strategy. It's very good advice. <laughs> we'll all put it to good practice. Yes. <laughs> so um, 
you continue with a postdoc in 2009 at the University of Sussex. But of course, you still continue collaborating with CERN. And, and those were very exciting times um, at CERN with the start of the LHC experiment um, and the discovery of the Higgs boson in uh, 2012. Um, what was your research focused on back then? So back then, I was looking for evidence of supersymmetry, and I was in a, an incredibly fortunate position to carry on the sort of feasibility studies that I'd done in my uh, as part of my PhD and actually apply them for the to the first data that was coming out from the Atlas experiment which was a wonderful thing to do um, unfortunately all null results we didn't see any signs of supersymmetry or any new physics um, but it, yes but as part of that research I was going out to CERN on almost a monthly basis actually which was incredibly bad for the environment but um I was able to be out there for um, quite a large portion of my time, looking over people's shoulders, and particularly when they said, come and have a look at this plot. Here's this, I'm seeing a signal. Here's the bump in the diphoton peak, and this is our Higgs boson. And, you know, there were all these people that they just found their signal, and they they were really developing it ready for publication in this race between our, our Atlas and the CMS experiments there to get it all out quickly and present it to the world. Now, my research sort of stems on from the Higgs, if that makes sense, because with the Higgs, there's more questions about our universe. We don't know why it's so light. Um, and we, we even when we incorporate the Higgs into the standard model that we know about, it doesn't extrapolate to the very high energies of the early universe. If something comes along in between, we hope, and to make our um, equations work and to make the Higgs very light. So I think we need new particles in the universe, maybe these shadowy supersymmetric particles. One could be our dark matter candidate. So I continue my search for supersymmetry because it helps us with the Higgs mass and it also should help us with the dark matter question as well in our universe. And it gives us lots of different ways to connect dark matter to the standard model particles we know about. So. Since those very early days uh, and all to now, um, I do continue my quest for supersymmetry, although I'm sort of delving into the, the more and more rare situations that supersymmetry could arise at the LHC. We started off with maybe a high production rate, very spectacular signal that we were looking for. We haven't seen it. So if things like supersymmetry exist in nature and we're making them, we know that they're going to be more hidden and more subtle and we need to develop very uh, more mature ways of looking for them at the LHC. So I'm, I'm very much now going into the more rare, more subtle signals and trying to pick those apart. And I think that's a sensible thing to do as we take more data as well. Mm -hmm. This is a very uh, fascinating explanation of how science operates in a way, because uh, it's kind of this like never ending journey of questions and then you find answers, but then the answers bring with themselves more questions and then you build on that. It's, uh, that's, uh, it's, very, it's very fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And living through such an important kind of breakthrough in, in particle physics and seeing kind of the world react to that, did you notice in your own research and talking to your collaborators or even family and friends, did people's attitudes towards particle physics and um, kind of knowledge of what particle physics is from the general public change? Like how has that affected how you see others perceiving your own research? It absolutely has changed it. While I was doing my PhD, 
nobody knew what I was doing. I think my parents thought I was looking through a telescope, <laughs> um, despite me trying to explain to them. And I, I remember when, I think that when we turned on the LHC, there was a big um, hoo-ha about us creating a black hole and mm-hmm. swallowing the earth. But it was actually very good for um, our outreach efforts, actually, in communicating our science and explaining to the world what it is we were actually trying to do and taking them on this journey with us. And I remember um, one of the, I think quite a few of the major papers actually had a photograph of um, my detector, of the Atlas experiment, before we filled the cavern with all of our electronics. And they explained what we were trying to do, and I think then it was my parents understood what we Mm -hmm. were trying to do. And I think ever since then we've managed to capture the um, imagination of the public and take them with us, which is really important because we are publicly funded. Um, every country delivers a small amount of the funds that runs the Large Hadron Collider and the other CERN experiments. So we do want to take the public with us. We do want them to um, experience this with us. So I, I think my family and my friends roughly do understand what I'm trying to do because there's been so much fantastic outreach that they can try and understand. It's become almost, I mean, the Higgs boson is part of our everyday language. There was the God particle that people were talking about for so Mm -hmm. long. And I think that did help people connect with my research. And we take a short break from the interview to highlight the latest news from the labs. Researchers at the Cavendish, Liam Lau and Dr. Chauvin Duta, have shown that passing pairs of particles through a magnetic field could coax them to act as different fundamental particles. In their paper, published in Physical Review Research, Lau and Duta say that by applying an effective magnetic field that varies in space and with the particle's density, it's possible to coax the same particles to behave as bosons in one region and pseudofermions in another. So, Jacob, what does it mean? <laughs> well, firstly, for those of you that don't remember your undergraduate physics, fermions and bosons are the two types of fundamental particles of which everything else is made up of. So, bosons are effectively energy particles. They're things like photons that we use to transmit energy or force between different particles. And fermions are matter particles, they're things like electrons, which build up the, uh, the particles around us. And in three dimensions, the two are fundamentally distinct. You can't, um, you can't just sort of swap one into the other. And if you want a source of fermions, you have to have a source of fermions there. You can't make bosons act as them. Whereas what this experiment's showing is that in a two-dimensional space, you can actually create particles that you can force to act as fermions or bosons, depending on the type of magnetic field they're passing through. This is done using particles called anions, which are a two-dimensional particle that only exists in two dimensions. So in three dimensions, if you take two bosons and swap their positions, if you sort of rotate them around each other, uh, these particles are then indistinguishable. If you were to look away and someone was to swap them around, just like the uh, this sort of old circus trick with the cups and the uh, the coin underneath, you wouldn't be able to distinguish one particle from the other. They're, yeah, the two are identical. But in two dimensions, this doesn't uh, this doesn't happen because the world lines, the sort of timeline of how that particle's travelled through space, become wrapped around each other in a way that is distinct depending on how they've been rotated. So if they go clockwise or counterclockwise, it produces a slightly different wave function, which is the mathematical equation that describes the particle, so that you can actually determine 
which of the two bosons is the one that started off at the bottom, which is the one that started off at the top. And these are then slightly different particles, which are called anions. And these have been known about since the 1970s, I think, at least theoretically. And they're uh, something that physicists have been uh, playing around with for a lot, for a long period. But what this experiment's interesting for is because it shows that these particles have emergent properties when you have more than one of them. So if you have just one anion, the magnetic fields that we're talking about are invisible to them. They just pass through them without being changed at all. But if you get two of them together, then these particles will interact differently. And in that case, depending on the magnetic field they're passing through, they'll act as either fermions or pseudo-fermions, because they were bosons in the first case, I think, or bosons. So you can change them from one fundamental particle to another just by changing the magnetic field that they pass through. So this is quite interesting and has some uh, applications for quantum computing, I think. So it's the first time that this behavior is modeled. And, and I think in the paper, the researchers have proposed an experimental setup to set to test these predictions. So this should open up a whole new area of research, and, and that's exciting. Indeed. So though this is a, uh, a bit of theoretical physics, it's done through mathematical models, the experiment that the scientists propose uses existing technologies. So it's not like sort of uh, fusion or things like that, which are theoretically possible, but uh, at the moment uh, physically impossible to do. So this is something that someone could go out and test today if they wanted to. And it has lots of interesting applications because there might be more multi-particle behaviour that emerges from these sort of uh, interactions. And so it's, it highlights something that wasn't known about before and has lots of implications, say, for quantum computing and for understanding particles more generally. That sounds really cool. Uh, we'll put the, the link to the original paper from Lau and Duta in the show notes. So do have a look if you want to learn more. And now we're back with Tina Potter, professor of high energy physics here at the Cavendish. So Tina, your son was born in 2014 and then you became a lecturer here at Cambridge in 2015 and then your daughter was born in 2017. How do you find the academic environment with regards to kind of work-life balance? I've only experienced positive things. Mm -hmm. I, and I know I'm, I'm sort of in a, a unique and very privileged position actually to be able to say that, but I've only... I've only experienced support from other members of staff and as from the institution of Cambridge it, itself. So, um, for example, we have um, a lot of efforts going on here in the department that allow me to work flexibly without being penalised. So most of the core meetings, for example, take place between 10 and 4 and nothing outside of that is mandatory. And that is very helpful for when you're doing the school drop-off and having to pick the children up and things like that. Um, there's amazing childcare around here as well that also helps during holidays. Um, and the general attitude from the rest of the staff is that actually we're all in a very similar position. Lots of other people are, are juggling families and work. And um, yes, I've just, I've, I've only had positive experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know other people have had... Um, have come up against barriers, but I'm incredibly happy to say that I've only been supported in, in all of this. And um, yes, I've, I've never had a barrier put up and it's always been, well, what do I want to do and how do I want to do it? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in our in the chat that we had earlier, um, when we were preparing for the interview, that you there were period of, periods of time when you had 30-hour weeks and periods of time when you had 100-hour weeks and kind of that, those fluctuations in, in the workload and sometimes when you could be more flexible or less flexible. So I guess in terms of these peaks and troughs, like how do you manage these fluctuations? 
I'm not, I'm not too sure. Um, <laughs> I, I have to get through them. <laughs> well, most of it's about organisation and understanding what has to be delivered. Like, mm-hmm. uh, teaching has to be delivered. I can't do that at the weekends. You know, I have to deliver that. What can be pushed around to um, help balance the workload, pushed into the next week and the next week. And unfortunately, there's some things that are on the bottom of the list that I haven't got to for six months, sadly, because they do keep getting pushed. Um so it uh, for me it's about organization and and realistic expectations. I cannot do 90 hour weeks, two weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I have to do very long weeks, it has to be very focused and very targeted and um I would say god help you if you get in my way in those <laughs> weeks. <laughs> I am not available for a coffee. Um but then when I have the the quieter weeks, that's when I try and get more of the the conversations and discussions mm-hmm. back in that I've missed. Um I don't want to cut myself off from from colleagues and things like that uh, permanently, but certainly those those very focused weeks are incredibly intense, but it allows me to to get that stuff out the way so that I can get back to normal. So sometimes it, it means working maybe for an hour or two in the evenings, but it can't be on something that I needs a lot of my brain power. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that you thought that the chances of becoming a permanent um, professor or having a permanent position were very slim initially when you first encountered physics as a you know in school and then in your undergraduate. Um, but then you still managed to become a professor here at, at the cabinet. So how, how did that... How did your perception of that change? And when did you see, oh, yes, I have a career in, in physics? I don't know. Um, I'm still very aware that I have survivor bias. You're talking about one of the few people that have survived mm-hmm. to this step. And when I look at sort of my cohort, I did uh, PhDs with here in the UK. Very few have survived to this level. Some are still postdocing, some are lecturers, but very few have survived. Um, so I, I know that I'm sitting in a very lucky position I'm still very happy to have this job and be able to continue this work um it is very difficult it it is a pyramid as you go up more and more people drop out there's fewer opportunities to move up to the next level and I've been I've tried to be very very realistic about this as I've gone through the likelihood was that I wasn't going to be able to work for on this work for the rest of my life in a secure position. I mm. might have to be travelling around every three years or six years as I went from postdoc to postdoc. Um, I soon realised that actually that's that's something that doesn't fit with a family and doesn't fit with dragging people all around um, um, for them to follow you happily. Um, so what I've done is tried to grasp every opportunity as it came up and try and carve out the path for myself. So when I I got the temporary lectureship here. I did see a place for myself here. I saw a need for my work and my contributions. And I tried to make sure that I carved out that path so that when the opportunity came up, and it was very timely, when the opportunity came up, I was going to grab it and take it. Mm-hmm. So um, I just want to circle back um, a bit to the, the topic of family that we just mm-hmm. touched upon uh, earlier. Because you said that uh, you stem from a non-academic family, so you had no path to follow also for, for your career uh, towards becoming a professor. Um, so how did you forge your own path and um, what advice would you give to someone in a similar situation? How do I forge my own path? Certainly in the early days, for example, as I went from undergraduate to my PhD, that was somewhat bumbling around and and being there at the right time and and making use of opportunities. 
I would say at the end of my PhD, I did have to make a, a strategic decision to write up quickly and join a new group and build that group up down at Sussex or to, to stay and maybe take a bit longer to finish my PhD. So I made a decision there and that was again jumping around from institute to institute and um, that was difficult. Um, but then I think after we got over the first very intense um, period of data taking at the LHC and intense research, um, that's probably when I sort of came out from the other side of that, that's when I probably knew that this was something that I could do and wanted to do and I needed to start making an effort to, to continue that. Because in that very first intense period, um, it really over, I think it consumed all of us. We were very, very focused on doing these searches and working from 6 a.m. till 10 or 11 p.m., maybe beyond that. And it was incredibly all-consuming. And it, I, I did have to sort of make a, a life decision there on how I was going to work and what I was going to do because it wasn't a sustainable thing. We all, I think we all um, at that period, all looked at ourselves very <laughs> critically um, at what we were doing. We don't work like that anymore day to day. Um, which I'm incredibly happy to say is it's far more balanced. And I saw that it was something indeed that I could uh, make a choice about and control the way that I worked. Um, so it was something that I could do for the rest of my career. And I saw, especially in the Large Hadron Collider, there is a, there is a career's worth of data coming out of that. I'm so lucky to be sitting here at the right time uh, to do that. And so most of this has been about, well, how do I, how do I make use how do I exploit all of that physics um, in a sensible and uh, regular way so that it's a job so that mm -hmm. I can come here sort of nine to five and do my physics and not be doing it 12, 18 hours a day. So time management is really key here. It is. You have to be, you have to be incredibly um, disciplined with yourself not to get carried away. Even I was, I was working a little bit last night, for example, just, just looking at something small and I got completely sucked in, and then it was very late before I went to bed. So I think you know, even now I'm not that disciplined with myself. It does suck you in. It is incredibly interesting work, uh, but yes, you do have to cut yourself off sometimes. So you've got energy to do it the next day. <laughs> so still remaining in the family environment. Of course, um, we mentioned you have children. Mm. Um, so how do you approach science with your children? How do you explain to them what you're doing? And do you think that their perception of who does science um, in academia will be different than your own uh, growing up without like a, a family member that was involved in the, in the academic life? Certainly. So I, I think their views of who is a scientist includes themselves. It includes you know, almost everybody they meet. Um, yes, they are little scientists as well, and I, they, I try and point out, they, they naturally have, and I think children do have this natural approach to the scientific method, they want to try things out, observe what happens, and then try something new based on those observations, and it's very interesting watching them work like that, they, it's natural play, but that's what they're doing. Um, so I do try and talk about my, my work. It's hard to tell at their ages, they're only seven or four, what's really going in. But certainly, for example, Paul, my son at school just loves science and 
absolutely, you know, it's the air, the area I would say that he's really excelling at because he has a natural curiosity. And I hope that that's actually something we've fostered at home. So going back to kind of the science itself, could you tell us a bit about what you're researching these days? And you said that you're trying to find evidence of particles beyond this standard model of particle physics. Is that correct? That's correct. So there's lots and lots of theories that are out there. These are big questions of our universe. There's a, yeah, so I'm, the, the way to go about this is there's a few ways that you could go and look for signs of new physics. You could go and measure what we know about incredibly precisely and look for deviations from mm -hmm. what we know. And there's some very interesting things that are coming up from LHCB and the muon G-2 experiments uh, last year. And I hope those interesting tensions actually um, increase. What I'm trying to do is instead look for direct production of particles. So not look for them changing our, our precision measurements of what we know, but instead looking for signs of them directly. So I've chosen supersymmetry to focus on because it gives us a huge number of new particles to go and look for. It's a very rich phenomenology and one of them gives us a, a really good dark matter candidate. Um, so with this rich array of new particles, I am focusing on the more rarely produced ones, chargenos, neutralinos, um, higginos, um, and have very cute names. <laughs> yes, they are fantastic names. So they're partners of our standard model bosons, our force particles, and standard model, um, sorry, partners of our leptons, like our electrons and muons. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of being, um, for example, uh, let's take our electron, it has a superpartner that is a boson. So there's a symmetry between fermion and bosons creating all of these new particles. So for our electron, we have selectrons. For smuons, we have partners called smuons. And for all of our the, for the partners of our Ws and Zs and Higgses, Higgses, because there's possibly more than one, oh. um, we have charginos and neutralinos. Uh, so this really rich away array of new particles we've got to go away and look for. We really must. Some of them we actually think are light. Um, we could make them at the Large Hadron Collider. Some could be beyond the energies of the Large Hadron Collider. We don't know. These are, unfortunately, there's so many free parameters in this theory. So we've got to go away and look for possible excesses in our data about where we think these new theories would actually appear. So I look for the production of uh, charginos and neutralinos and sleptons, and they would decay down to standard model particles like electrons and muons, but also our dark matter candidate. And those would be undetectable and pass invisibly through our detector. So we wouldn't see those, but we would detect their presence by an imbalance of energy. There would be this imbalance... Um, we would expect it to, uh, oh, for example, the momentum to be uh, conserved in the transverse plane because you start off with zero transverse momentum and what comes out of that has to be zero transverse momentum. But if it's not, if it's not balanced, we know that something invisible has escaped our detector. So this imbalance is really important to understand and it's a smoking gun of something like supersymmetry, that something heavy and massive has escaped your detector. So I'm sort of trying to, to see the invisible, actually, in this mm -hmm. imbalance of energy and momentum. And hopefully the 
detectable particles that are produced in these very rare productions. Those are also uh, maybe a little bit more spectacular um, in energy and momentum than our standard model particles that allows us to pick these signal events out over the standard model. And it is, it's like a needle in a haystack, what we're looking for. It's a very rare production. It's uh, the way that we detect it is very difficult then to pick apart from the standard model. So yes, the, the good analogy is the, the needle in a haystack. But I hope that as we continue to take data and we, we refine our methodology on how to look for these things and how to suppress backgrounds and how to really hone in on these uncertainties, that maybe we might see a significant success mm -hmm. and move in from sort of searching, move into a discovery mode where we're trying to understand mm -hmm. this signal. Like when we discovered the Higgs boson, the next thing was, well, okay, is it the Higgs boson? Let's go away and measure it. Does, it. does it actually look and smell like the Higgs boson? So I'd love then to see an excess and then be going away and measuring it mm -hmm. and understanding it. Yeah, it sounds like you need to know precisely what it is that you're looking for because you have so many pieces of hay in this haystack. Exactly. But if you know you're looking for, let's say, a needle made out of a magnetic material, just put your magnet there, boom, your, your needle's out. Exactly. <laughs> so if and you this, know how to find it, then it'll be there. <laughs> and this supersymmetric parameter space is, is vast. It's mm. absolutely vast. You tweak one parameter and it almost changes the whole phenomenology. So you have to be very smart about how you look. Mm -hmm. So of course, these particle collider experiments are very cumbersome, take a long time. Uh, to plan, to execute, and to analyze. And in our preparation, we used the phrase cathedral projects uh, in the sense that you might work on the design of the experiments that might not be realized until 10 or 20 years uh, in the future. So how do you, how do you deal with that? It is, it's difficult. Um, it's, it's something that is quite difficult to accept and you have to understand where your place is along in this big, vast journey that we're all going on. So when I started on the Atlas experiment, um, it was designed, most of the components were built, and we were taking them down into the cavern to fill up the cavern. And now when you go down there, it's uh, you've got electronics right in front of your face. That's all you see. Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> it's the last place. It's a wall of electronics in this cavern. But when I first went in there, it was, it was empty. Mm -hmm. We had some feet and a few magnets in there. It was it was amazing. So my part of the journey with the LHC has, has been almost just to make use of the data that all of this work that came before me has actually been done. So what we're trying to do now is see what the next step is. So when we, there's a next, um, oh, where are we now in time? At the end of the 2020s, we're going to take a break in the LHC again and um, ramp it up for the rate at which we collide our protons so that we can take data faster. During this time, we're going to upgrade the Atlas detector. We're going to actually take out the sort of the most inner um, layers of our detector because they won't be able to cope with the radiation levels, basically, from this. Take those out and replace them with more radiation-hard um, detectors that will be able to cope with that kind of environment and still give us precision measurements. And so some of that work is going on downstairs here in the Cavendish mm. as we um, make those components that will then go to another site to be built into a long stave and then be taken to CERN. 
So we need to contribute to those future upgrades that we're doing now and also think about what comes after the Large Hadron Collider, after even this big upgrade. Um, I would love to leave something for the next generation in terms of planning and certainly if we don't start get planning or discussing what we need and what we might want now, it won't be built and it won't be getting started until after the Large Hadron Collider. Precisely because the time frames are so long to construct and to exactly. detect all these particles. Yeah. So one thing we know we want is a Higgs factory. So what we would like to do is take electrons and positrons, maybe a linear collider, collide them um, at exactly the energy resonance of the Higgs, make lots and lots of Higgs bosons and understand them to very high precision. So that looks like it's going to happen over in Japan with the International Linear Collider. And if it doesn't happen there, we could do that at CERN uh, with uh, the CERN Linear Collider click. But what about beyond that? So that's going to be a Higgs um, precision uh, factory. Um, that doesn't help us with our big questions like dark matter or the matter-antimatter asymmetry. So we'd also be looking for what we would call a discovery machine. One of my favourite options on the table is actually the Future Circular Collider. It would be a huge 100 kilometre ring wow. that is built off of the um, existing CERN accelerator infrastructure. So the LHC would be one of the ramp-up rings that is essentially filled, mm -hmm. feeds into this huge 100 kilometre circumference ring. And this would allow us to get up to the much higher energies and hopefully access heavier particles that we cannot access right now. And it would have um, three different phases, colliding electrons and positrons to do precision measurements. And then finally ramping up to colliding protons and protons to really allow us to, to do these very high energy collisions and start to maybe discover things in that higher energy regime. I hope though, before we get to the FCC, that we would have discovered or seen hints showing us, you know, maybe signposting us what, what we need to do and where mm -hmm. we need to go with the next generation. Uh, it would be very strange if I think if we get to the end of the LHC programme and we haven't got a signpost. I'm hoping that the trends and um, the tensions that we already see continue and will allow us to signpost us as what we need to do with this big next step. But the future circular collider, the FCC, I think has the flexibility in its physics programme to um, address some of those issues and questions. So we go back to what we discussed before. The answers to the current experiments will ask the questions, naturally propel the questions for the next generation of experiments. Absolutely. Every time we uncover um, a solution or a particle that we think we understand, there's more mysteries, more questions to answer. Um, so I hope that questioning actually continues for the rest mm -hmm. of my career even if we discover something new i hope that it opens up more questions and gives other people a thirst for understanding as well well thank you so much tina for being our guests here at people doing physics thank you very much thanks to our guest tina potter and to our producer chris for this episode the news today were brought to you by vanessa and jacob if you want to learn more about what's being discussed in this episode or why not want to join us or study with us at the Cavendish, go to phy.can.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. 
We would love to put your questions to our team of physicists. Send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye! Thank you.